In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we commemorate the triumph of orthodoxy, the day when icons were finally declared to be essential to our faith after centuries of fierce debate. We remember the key dates of the Seventh Ecumenical Council in the year 787, where icon veneration was upheld. This was convened by the Empress Irene. And beyond that, and more especially, the year 843, when the Empress Theodora convened the local council in Constantinople to settle the matter in favor of icons for all time. So today I want to focus on why icons are so important for us, using the insights of such specialists in the field as Jonathan Peugeot, Leonid Uspensky, and Archbishop Stylianos of Thrice Blessed Memory. And I begin with a quote from Jonathan Peugeot, where he makes clear some of the themes that I'd like to unpack today about icons. He writes, one of the main purposes of the icon in its imitation of our Lord himself is to participate in connecting heaven and earth. By making visible in earthly terms, in people, events, and things, a glimpse of heavenly truth, they lead us toward the transfiguration of the world. So firstly, icons teach us about our salvation in Christ. And Peugeot continues by saying that the icon is one of those places where the scandal of the incarnation is most clearly seen, which is probably one of the reasons why the icon has been a source of great celebration and great conflict in the history of Christianity. Just like Christ took on true human flesh, so it is proper to depict him on materials such as wood or stone. St. John of Damascus, in his defense of icons, writes, I do not worship matter, but I worship the creator of matter, who for my sake became material and deigned to dwell in matter, who through matter effected my salvation. I will not cease from worshiping the matter that is Christ himself, through which my salvation has been effected. So we venerate the mother of God and the saints as well, who share in the saving life of the Trinity made possible by Christ's incarnation. They have been deified, they have been divinized, filled with the life of God. However, after this sublime justification for icons, which in itself is enough to have them, there are a number of other reasons why they are so significant for us. Another reason is that icons teach us about how we should see other people. And Archbishop Stylianos writes this. He says, Must we necessarily look at icons of the saints? Precisely in this question is the central nerve of the whole mystery of icons confronted. While the lives of saints and general texts written down describe the persons based on their actions and thoughts, the icon expresses the boundless depth which the human person by definition possesses since it is created in the image and likeness of God. For whereas the actions and thoughts of a person may be measured according to its life in a limited place and time, the quality of the image and likeness tends towards the limitless, just as God too is without limitation. So icons reveal the great destiny available for all of us, the transfiguration of the saints, whom we see around our nave here in our church building, reminds us of our own potential for the same. In the gospel story today, when Jesus speaks to Nathaniel, he says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
I saw you. And he, he sees the eternal potential of every person to participate in the very life of the Trinity, to be a saint. And we gain insight, I think, into how we should see people by looking at the process by which an icon is created. Now, there are various methods according to different schools of iconography, but one of the processes as described by the icon writers Maria Leontovich Manley and Genevieve Landregan goes something like this, and I believe this is from a Russian school of iconography. They speak about firstly carving out a central area on a wooden block, and they call this area the Ark, as in the Ark of the Covenant, that sacred chest which contained the most precious items for the Israelite nation. This wood is then covered with a cheesecloth, and a gesso is prepared, this substance made from glue and water and chalk, and this is brushed onto the cheesecloth. Following this, a drawing is etched into the gesso with an etching tool. The gold is then applied, but before this, the area, has, um, the area to be gilded has to be burnished and sanded several times until a perfectly smooth finish is achieved. And if there are any imperfections in the icon at this point, they will show through the gold because the gold is so thin. Now, the icon writer has to get very close to the icon, close enough to breathe on it, and the breath of the icon writer condenses on the surface, and this helps the gold to be laid. And this is uh, something akin to God breathing life into Adam. And after two layers of gold, it can be burnished to a bright shine. And then it's ready for the painting. And each stage of painting, there's about five or six of them, has a particular name. The first name is the chaos. It's literally called chaos. And the final stage is called prosopon. And prosopon is a Greek word for person. Person. And what's more, this word has connotations of moving towards vision, a subject moving towards vision. And this is just astonishing because what we see in the process of writing an icon, we say writing rather than painting, we see the icon writer working lovingly, patiently, in stages, moving the, the, the icon from chaos to personhood in imitation of God who takes us from the chaos of corruption and death and brings us to true personhood. Moreover, takes the entire creation from the chaos of nothingness to transfigured reality. But we're not there yet. There's this sense of becoming. The church fathers speak about the fact that we're all created in the image of God, but to attain to the likeness is a process that takes time. It reminds us how people, as people, we are incomplete icons or faded icons. That though, as the memorial service tells us, we are the image of God's inexpressible glory, we still bear the scars of our transgressions. And maybe this is why people have an appreciation for faded icons, for faded church buildings that have icons that have weathered and, and aged, something like the Vladimir Mother of God icon, more than a thousand years old, and it shows its age. And people will buy new reproductions 
of this icon, not as it was when it was originally printed, but with the cracks and the fading and everything. Maybe it speaks to something in us to see faded icons. Now, this is important because when people annoy us, when they anger us, when we find it hard to forgive other people, and in Lent, I think this is particularly challenging, if we can stop to think that people are icons still being written, maybe it can help us be a bit more patient. Maybe it can help us be a bit more forgiving. Maybe it can help us be a bit more patient and forgiving to ourselves, knowing that our Creator still lovingly works like an icon writer to beautify His image within us despite all our sinfulness. Another thing icons do for us is they teach us how to see the world. Archbishop Stylianos continues by saying that icons transform the mortal surfaces of this world into windows leading to eternity. Just as the original fall of man led to the alienation of the entire creation from its divinely given purpose and to its expectation, sighing and groaning with us for its hour of redemption, likewise, after the incarnation of God, which restored man to his original beauty, the entire creation was called to glorification of the Redeemer. So now, no material element is any longer profane but rather through proper spiritual use becomes an expression of the new order of reality, namely of the recreated new world. All matter was meant to lead us to communion with God. And Adam and Eve, before the fall, used creation as a means of communion with God. And their choice to eat the forbidden fruit, we can see as their use of creation as a means to a different ends not communion with God, but rather self-interest and pride. But the existence of the icon shows us the right use. And an iconic view of the world is at the basis of orthodox environmentalism, that one day this world will be transfigured. Leonid Uspensky reminds us that the icon transcends time. The icon, he writes, opens for us a boundless vision, which includes the past and the future of the world. It shows the world as it was before the fall, but more than that, how it will be at the end of all things, at the eschaton. And this is why it's important to get our use of matter right. In the history of icons, there have been two classic abuses. Among those who, who liked icons, the iconophiles, sometimes they went too far. Sometimes they would do things like use icons as sponsors and godparents as at baptisms. Sometimes they would chip the gold off the icons into the communion chalice, thinking this would somehow enhance the body and blood of Christ. Now, this was a worship of matter. This was an appreciation of the material separated from its correct context in God, and that was wrong. On the other extreme, we had the iconoclasts who destroyed icons or discontinued their use. And this is a denial of matter or somehow trying to separate the physical and the material from the so-called spiritual. So we don't worship matter, as did some of the icon supporters. We don't worship creation, focusing too much on the here and now, or caring too much about the body and temporary matters without an eternal perspective. But neither do we disregard or abuse matter, having a disposable view of what has been created or thinking that the body or the material is of no consequence. This leads to a lack of concern for a suffering world and for suffering people. 
So how do we see created things? Do we use them as a means for communion and thankfulness with God or as ends in themselves for our own selfish purposes? And there's an opportunity in Lent as we fast to think about our relationship with all created things. We are the body of Christ in this world. The church is the icon of the kingdom of God that is leading all creation to its fulfillment. This should inform all our choices, all our interactions with material things, what we eat, what we drink, how we eat and drink, what we wear, even our purchasing, consumption, and environmental choices. This has nothing to do with ideology, and this has nothing to do with the politics of the left or the right. It has all to do with our holy tradition that tells us that one day the creation will be recreated and that all will participate in the life of the Trinity. My final point is that the icons teach us about the values of the gospel. You've probably gathered by now that the icons don't follow the normal rules of realism or naturalism in art. Other values are at play. Many have noted the inverse perspective that takes place with uh, items in the icons arranged not according to the laws of painting for such things as the vanishing point. And Leonid Uspensky once again comments on this, saying that there's a perfect correspondence between icon, uh, the icon and Holy Scripture. And the icon calls us to the life which the gospel reveals. In the gospel, everything, so to speak, is in inverse perspective. The first shall be last. The meek and not the violent shall inherit the earth. And the supreme humiliation of the cross is truly the supreme victory. Thus, the life of the Christian is placed in the same perspective. The death of the martyr is his victory, his coronation, and privations of the ascetic struggle are transformed into an incomparable joy. If we consider the inverse perspective of the icon from this point of view, we will be able to understand its meaning. It is not an optical illusion. It does not fascinate the spectator, leading to a a futile game of appearances. On the contrary, it calms him, makes him concentrate, makes him attentive to the message of the icon. It is as if man were standing before a path which, instead of losing itself in space, opens on to infinite fullness. A door which leads to divine life, therefore, is opened before the Christian. To conclude then, in the gospel, Christ tells Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened. And this is what we have because of our icons in our church. Father Andreas Andriopoulos says that the ability to unite the realms of heaven and earth remained the key to the theological mystery of icons and allowed them to weather the the severest theological, psychological, and emotional storms. Icons are essential to our faith. They make clear to us the incarnation of Christ and that same life in Christ that the saints participate in. They also show us the right attitude towards people and towards all material creation and help us orient our lives to the values of the gospel which run counter to the values of this world. There's a challenge for us to reorient our lives then to right relationship to God, to others, and to the world. Above all, may this triumph of orthodoxy today be a message of hope, that as we gaze into the face of Christ, we may marvel at his great condescension. He's come come down to be with us. And as we look into the eyes of the saints, 
May we see a glimpse of the glory and the wonder that can await us too in the journey ahead. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory of martyrs, true.